Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classes of Mail. My name is Alan Gigax, and today we're going to be reading from the JCAM again. And this time we're going to read, uh, the, the articles are getting smaller, at least in general. So we're going to power through a bunch of them today. Not one, not two, not three, not four. Oh, wait, yes, four. We're going to do Article 17, 18, 19, and 20. So let's get to it. Article 17 is Representation. 17.1, Section 1, Stewards. Stewards may be designated for the purpose of investigating, presenting, and adjusting grievances. Contractual, obliga- or contractual authorization for stewards. Although shop stewards are union representatives and NALC officials chosen according to NALC rules, stewards are also given important rights and responsibilities by the National Labor Relations Act and by the National Agreement. The contract authorizes stewards to represent carriers in the investigation, presentation, and adjustment of grievances, and requires the employer to cooperate with stewards in various ways as they accomplish their grievance handling jobs. The specific steward rights and responsibilities set forth in Article 17.3 and 17.4 are supplemented in other parts of the National Agreement, including Article 6.C.4, Super Seniority in Layoff or Reduction in Force, Article 15, Grievance Handling. Article 27, Employee Claims. Article 31.3, Right to Information. Article 41.3.H, Right to Use Telephones. 17.2.A, Section 2, Appointment of Stewards. A, the union will certify to the employer in writing a steward or stewards and alternates in accordance with the following general guidelines. Where more than one steward is appointed, one shall be designated chief steward. The selection and appointment of stewards or chief stewards is the sole and exclusive function of the union. Stewards will be certified to represent employees in specific work locations on their tour, provided no more than one steward may be certified to represent employees in a particular work location. The number of stewards certified shall not exceed, but may be less than, the number provided by the formula hereinafter set forth. And there's a chart here that shows how many stewards you need based on how many employees you have. You can have, um, damn, some places have 500 or more employees. Well, allegedly. Anyway, the contract covers that. It's all in there in the chart. If you want to see it. Steward certification. Article Article 17.2.A obligates the NALC to certify each steward and alternate to the employer in writing. Once certified, the steward represents employees in a specific work location. The steward from station A, for example, must investigate any grievance occurring at his or her location, even the grievance of a carrier who is detailed temporarily from station B and whose grievance arose at station A. This is true even if the station A steward must travel to interview the grievance at station B, as provided in Article 17.3. And there's a citation here. CCAs can serve as union stewards. The provisions of Article 17 apply to CCAs. 17.2.B. B. At an installation, the union may designate in writing to the employer one union representative actively employed at that installation to act as steward to investigate, present, and adjust a specific grievance or to investigate a specific problem to determine whether to file a grievance. The activities of such union representative shall be in lieu of a steward designated under the formula in Section 2.A. 
and shall be in accordance with Section 3. Payment, when applicable, shall be in accordance with Section 4. C. To provide steward service to installations with 20 or less craft employees where the union has not certified a steward, a union representative certified to the employer in writing and compensated by the union may perform the duties of a steward. D. At the option of the union, representatives not on the employer's payroll shall be certified to or shall be entitled to perform the functions of a steward or chief steward, provided such representatives are certified in writing to the employer at the area level and providing such representatives act in lieu of stewards designated under the provisions of 2.A or 2.B above. Acting as Steward Article 17.2 establishes four alternate ways individuals may be certified as stewards as circumstances warrant. Article 17.2.B, the union may, on an exception basis, designate in writing one union representative actively employed at that installation to act as a steward to investigate, present, and adjust a specific grievance or to investigate a specific issue to determine whether to file a grievance. The designation must be in writing at the installation level and applies to the specific grievance or specific issue only. The designation does not carry over. The individual designated will act in lieu of a steward designated under the formula in Section 2.A and is paid in accordance with Section 4. For the purposes of this section, full-time union officials are considered to be actively employed. And there's a citation. 17.2.C. In offices with 20 or less total craft employees, which have no steward certified under Article 17.2.A, the union may certify a representative who is compensated by the union. Article 17.2.D. The union may certify a representative not on the employer's payroll to perform the functions of a steward or chief steward. Such representatives must be certified in writing to the appropriate area office and will act in lieu of stewards designated under the provisions of Article 17.2.A or 17.2.B. Representatives certified by the union pursuant to Article 17.2.D may be anyone who is not on the employer's official time. This would include, for example, employees from another installation and former employees. And there's citations here. 17.2.E. E. A steward may be designated to represent more than one craft or to act as a steward in a craft other than his or her own whenever the union or unions involved so agree and notify the employer in writing. Any steward designations across craft lines must be in accordance with the formula set forth in Section 2.A above. 17.3, Section 3, Rights of Stewards. When it is necessary for a steward to leave his or her work area to investigate and adjust grievances or to investigate a specific problem to determine whether to file a grievance, the steward shall request permission from the immediate supervisor and such request shall not be unreasonably denied. In the event the duties require the steward to leave the work area and enter another area within the installation or post office, the steward must also receive permission from the supervisor from the other area he or she wishes to enter, and such request shall not be unreasonably denied. The steward, chief steward, or other union representative properly certified in accordance with Section 2 above may request and shall obtain access through the appropriate supervisor to review the documents, files, and other records necessary for processing a grievance or determining if a grievance exists, 
and shall have the right to interview the aggrieved employees, supervisors, and witnesses during working hours. Such requests shall not be unreasonably denied. While serving as a steward or chief steward, an employee may not be involuntarily transferred to another tour, to another station or branch of the particular post office, or to another independent post office or installation, unless there is no job for which the employee is qualified on such tour or in such station or branch or post office. If an employee requests a steward or union representative to be present during the course of an interrogation by the inspection service, such request will be granted. All polygraph tests will continue to be on a voluntary basis. 17.4. Section 4. Payment of Stewards. The employer will authorize payment only under the following conditions. Grievances. Informal and formal step A. The aggrieved and one union steward only is permitted under the formula in section 2.A for time actually spent in grievance handling, including investigations and meetings with the employer. The employer will also compensate a steward for the time reasonably necessary to write a grievance. In addition, the employer will compensate any witnesses for the time required to attend a formal Step A meeting. Meetings called by the employer for information exchange and other conditions designated by the employer concerning contract application. That's not a sentence. Hold on, let me read that again. Meetings called by the employer for information exchange and other conditions designated by the employer concerning contract application. Oh, because there was a colon earlier. Sorry, that's on me. All right, so that's a, another way that they'll get payment. Yeah, okay. Employer authorized... Dude, now you got me all messed up. Employer authorized payment, as outlined above, will be granted at the applicable straight time rate, providing the time spent is part of the employees or stewards, only as provided for under the formula in 2.A, regular workday. The Postal Service will compensate the union's primary Step B representatives at their appropriate rate of pay on a no-loss, no-gain basis. Activated backup Step B representatives will be compensated on the same basis for time actually spent as Step B representatives. Steward Rights Article 17, Sections 3 and 4 establish several steward rights. The right to investigate and adjust grievances and problems that may become grievances. The right to paid time to conduct those activities. The right to obtain management information. Super seniority concerning being involuntarily transferred. An employee's right to steward representation during an inspection service interrogation. Steward rights. Activities included. A steward may conduct a broad range of activities related to the investigation and adjustment of grievances and of problems that may become grievances. These activities include the right to review relevant documents, files, and records, as well as interviewing a potential grievance, supervisors, and witnesses. Specific settlements and arbitration decisions have established that a steward has the right to, among other things, the following. Complete grievance forms and right appeals on the clock. See below. Interview witnesses, including postal patrons who are off postal premises. And there's uh, numerous... Well, at least there's citations here. Interview supervisors, and there's citation. Interview postal inspectors, citation. Review relevant documents, citation. Review an employee's official personnel folder when relevant, citation. 
write the union statement of corrections and additions to the formal step A decision. Citation. Interview Office of Inspector General Agents. Hey, there's no citation for this one. A steward has the right to conduct all such activities on the clock. See below. Right to steward time on the clock. Although a steward must ask for supervisory permission to leave his or her work area or enter another one to pursue a grievance or potential grievance, management cannot unreasonably deny requests for paid grievance handling time. Management may not determine in advance how much time a steward reasonably needs to investigate a grievance. And there's a citation. Rather, the determination of how much time is considered reasonable is dependent on the issue involved and the amount of information needed for investigation purposes. Another citation. Steward time to discuss a grievance may not be denied solely because a steward is in overtime status. Citation. It is the responsibility of the union and management to decide mutually when the steward will be allowed, subject to business conditions, an opportunity to investigate and adjust grievances. Another citation. If management delays a steward from investigating a grievance, it should inform the steward of the reasons for the delay and when time will be available. Likewise, the steward has an obligation to request additional time and give the reasons why it is needed. Oh, and there's a citation for that too. An employee must be given reasonable time to consult with his or her steward, and such reasonable time may not be measured by a predetermined factor. Yet another citation. Although Article 17.4 provides that the grievant and a steward shall be paid for time actually spent in grievance handling and meetings with management, there are no contractual provisions requiring the payment of travel time or expenses in connection with attendance at a formal Step A meeting. Another citation. Nor does the national agreement require the payment of a steward who accompanies an employee to a medical facility for a fitness for duty examination. Citation. The appropriate remedy in a case where management has unreasonably denied a steward time on the clock is an order or agreement to cease and desist, plus payment to the steward for time spent processing the grievance off the clock, which should have been paid time. Right to information. The NALC's right to information relevant to collective bargaining and to contract administration are set forth in Article 31. This section states stewards' specific rights to review and obtain documents, files, and other records, in addition to the right to interview a grievance, supervisors, and witnesses. Stewards' request to review and obtain documents should state how the request is relevant to the handling of a grievance or potential grievance. Management should respond to questions and to requests for documents in a cooperative and timely manner. When a relevant request is made, management should provide for review and or produce the requested documentation as soon as is reasonably possible. A steward has a right to obtain supervisors' personal notes of discussions held with individual employees in accordance with Article 16.2 if the notes have been made part of the employee's official personnel folder, or if they are necessary to processing a grievance or determining whether agreements exist. And there's citations here. Weingarten writes, Federal labor law, in what is known as the Weingarten Rule, gives each employee the right to representation during any investigatory interview which he or she reasonably believes may lead to discipline. And this is a U.S. Supreme Court case, NLRB versus J. Weingarten, U.S. Supreme Court, 1975. The Weingarten Rule does not apply to other types of meetings, such as discussions. 
Article 16.2 provides that, quote, for minor offenses by an employee, discussion shall be held in private between the employee and the supervisor. Such discussions are not disciplined and are not grievable, end quote. So an employee does not have Weingarten representation rights during an official discussion, and there's a citation backing that up. Employees do not have the right to union representation during fitness for duty physical examinations. The Weingarten rule only applies when the meeting is an investigatory interview, when management is searching for facts and trying to determine the employee's guilt or decide whether or not to employ, impose discipline. The rule does not apply when management calls in a carrier for the purpose of issuing disciplinary action, e.g. handing the carrier a letter of warning. An employee has Weingarten representation rights only where he or she reasonably, reasonably believes that discipline could result from the investigatory interview. Whether or not an employee's belief is reasonable depends on the circumstances of each case. Some cases are obvious, such as when a supervisor asks an employee whether he discarded deliverable mail. The steward cannot exercise Weingarten rights on the employee's behalf. And unlike Miranda rights, which apply in criminal matters, the employer is not required to inform the employee of the Weingarten right to representation. Employees also have the right under Weingarten to a pre-interview consultation with a steward. Federal courts have extended this right to pre-meeting consultations to cover inspection service interrogations. And here's the citation. In a Weingarten interview, the employee has the right to a steward's assistance, not just a silent presence. The employer would violate the employee's Weingarten rights if it refused to allow the representative to speak or tried to restrict the steward to the role of passive observer. Although ELM section 665.3 requires all postal employees to cooperate with postal investigations, the carrier still has the right under Weingarten to have a steward present before answering questions in this situation. The carrier may respond that he or she will answer questions once a steward is provided. Super seniority in transfers. The contract contains special provisions protecting steward positions from transfer or reassignment. These special steward rights are known as super seniority. The steward super seniority provision is contained in the second to last paragraph of Article 17.3. That language protects stewards from being transferred from a facility or tour where letter carriers are working, unless there is no other city letter carrier job left. National Arbitrator Britain ruled in blah, blah, blah that Article 17.3 bars both temporary and permanent reassignments of stewards and that the prohibition applies even if there are no vacant job assignments. In other words, super seniority rights must be observed even if it requires an involuntary transfer of another more senior carrier, whether full-time or part-time. The steward's super seniority rights override the, ex the accessing provisions of Article 12, principles of seniority, posting, and reassignments. NALC stewards are always the last letter carriers to be accessed from a section, the craft, or an installation, regardless of their seniority or their full-time or part-time status. 17.5, Section 5, Labor Management Committee Meetings. The union, through its designated agents, shall be entitled at the national area, and local levels, and at such other intermediate levels as may be appropriate, to participate in regularly scheduled joint labor management committee meetings for the purpose of discussing, exploring, and considering with management matters of mutual concern, provided neither party shall attempt to change, add to, or vary the terms of this collective bargaining agreement. 
All other national-level committees established pursuant to the terms of this agreement shall function as subcommittees of the National-Level Labor Management Committee. Oh, that was Part B, by the way. C. Meetings at the national and area, except as to the Christmas operation, levels will not be compensated by the employer. The employer will compensate one designated representative from the union for actual time spent in the meeting at the applicable straight time rate, providing the time spent in such meetings is a part of the employee's regular scheduled workday. 17.6, Section 6, Union Participation in New Employee Orientation. During the course of any employment orientation program for new employees, a representative of the union representing the craft to which the new employees are assigned shall be provided ample opportunity to address such new employees, provided that this provision does not preclude the employer from addressing employees concerning the same subject. Health benefit enrollment information and forms will not be provided during orientation until such time as a representative of the union has had an opportunity to address such new employees. I just sneezed, but I very professionally paused my recording. Look at that. The things I do for you guys. New employee orientation. During new letter carrier orientation, a representative of the NALC shall be provided ample opportunity to address the new employees while they are on the clock. Management must permit new employees to complete standard form SF-1187 during new employee orientation time. And there's a citation. Article 17 does not preclude management from being present during the union's new employee orientation. Another citation. The union is to be provided ample opportunity to address all newly hired CCAs as part of the hiring of as part of the hiring slash new employee orientation process. Former transitional employees go through the full orientation process when hired as CCAs if the employee was not provided orientation when hired as a transitional employee. However, the union will be provided time, as defined in Article 17.6 of the National Agreement, to address those CCAs that went through the full orientation process as transitional employees. The union will also be provided an opportunity to discuss and address the NALC health benefit plans available to career employees, pursuant to Article 17.6, when a CCA becomes a career employee. 17.7.A, Section 7, Checkoff. In A, in conformity with Section 2 of the Act 39 U.S.C. 1205, without cost to the union, the employer shall deduct and remit to the union the regular and periodic union dues from the pay of employees who are members of the union, provided that the employer has received a written assignment which shall be irrevocable for a period of not more than one year, from each employee on whose account such deductions are to be made. The employer agrees to remit to the union all deductions to which it is entitled 14 days after the end of the pay period for which such deductions are made. Deductions shall be in such amounts as are designated to the employer in writing by the union. B. The authorization of such deductions shall be in the following form. And here's the form. United States Postal Service Authorization for Deduction of Union Dues. Whoop, hold on, Annie is eating a book. All right, disaster averted. She did not eat the book. Just a little chewed on the corner. All right, moving on. I hereby assign to the National Association of Letter Carriers, AFL-CIO, from any salary or wages earned or to be earned by me as your employee, 
in my present or any future employment by you, such regular and periodic membership dues as the union may certify as due and owing from me, as may be established from time to time by said union. I authorize and direct you to deduct such amounts from my pay and to remit same to said union at such times and in such manner as may be agreed upon between you and the union at any time while this authorization is in effect, which includes an $8 yearly subscription to the postal record as part of the membership dues. Notice, contributions or gifts to the National Association of Letter Carriers, AFL-CIO, are not tax-deductible as charitable contributions for federal income tax purposes. However, they may be tax-deductible under other provisions of the Internal Revenue Code. This assignment, authorization, and direction shall be irrevocable for a period of one year from the date of delivery hereof to you. And I agree and direct that this assignment, authorization, and direction shall be automatically renewed and shall be irrevocable for successive periods of one year unless written notice is given by me to you and the union not more than 20 days and not less than 10 days prior to the expiration of each period of one year. The assignment is freely made pursuant to the provisions of the Postal Reorganization Act and is not contingent upon the existence of any agreement between you and my union. Form to be revised to conform to postal machine requirements as on SF-1187. Dude, they don't make it easy to get out of the union, apparently. I had no idea it was so strict. All right, we're not here for commentary. We're reading the contract. 17.7.C. C. Notwithstanding the foregoing, employees' dues deduction authorizations, standard form 1187, which are presently on file with the employer on behalf of the union, shall continue to be honored and given full force and effect by the employer unless and until revoked in accordance with their terms. D. The employer agrees that it will continue in effect but without cost to employees, its existing program of payroll deductions at the request and on behalf of employees for remittance to financial institutions, including credit unions. In addition, the employer agrees without cost to the employee to make payroll deductions on behalf of such organization or organizations as the union shall designate to receive funds to provide group automobile insurance and or homeowners slash tenant liability insurance for employees, provided only one insurance carrier is selected to provide such coverage. The preceding article, Article 17, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. And here we have a memo between the USPS and the NALC regarding Article 17.7.D, payroll deductions slash allotments. No later than January 4, 2008, the Postal Service will increase the maximum allotments in the existing programs by providing one additional allotment for the use of NALC bargaining unit employees. Date September 11, 2007. That is the end of Article 17. So now we will move on to Article 18, the no-strike article. Let me get a drink here. Hmm. I have found that Coke Zero does a pretty good job of keeping my mouth wet, but keeping mouth noises to a minimum. I guess it's just right. Of Well... Anyway, pro tip, if you're having trouble with that, maybe you try Coke Zero. I don't know. Different stuff works for different people. None of that matters. What does matter is that we can't strike, so let's talk about it. 18.1, Section 1, Statement of Principle. 
The union, in behalf of its members, agrees that it will not call or sanction a strike or slowdowns. Section 2. Union Actions The union or its local unions, whether called branches or by other names, will take reasonable action to avoid any such activity, and where such activity occurs, immediately inform striking employees they are in violation of this agreement and order said employees back to work. Section 3. Union Liability It is agreed that the union or its local unions, whether called branches or by other names, which comply with the requirements of this article shall not be liable for the unauthorized action of their members or other postal employees. Section 4. Legal Impact The parties agree that the provisions of this article shall not be used in any way to defeat any current or future legal action involving the constitutionality of existing or future legislation prohibiting federal employees from engaging in strike actions. The parties further agree that the obligations undertaken in this article are in no way contingent upon the final determination of such constitutional issues. The preceding article, Article 18, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Prohibition on Strikes Federal law has long prohibited strikes by postal and most other federal employees, and provided criminal penalties for violations. The Postal Reorganization Act of 1970 continued to apply the strike prohibitions of Title V, Section 7511 of the U.S. Code, 5 U.S.C., uh, Section 7511, to postal employees, as well as the federal criminal penalties for violations contained in 18 U.S.C., Section 1918. That's the end of Article 18. Article 19, Handbooks and Manuals. This is one that is definitely cited uh, frequently in grievances. Those parts of all handbooks, manuals, and published regulations of the Postal Service that directly relate to wages, hours, or working conditions as they apply to employees covered by this agreement shall contain nothing that conflicts with this agreement and shall be continued in effect except that the employer shall have the right to make changes that are not inconsistent with this agreement and that are fair, reasonable, and equitable. This includes, but is not limited to, the Postal Service Manual and the F-21 Timekeeper's Instructions. Notice of such proposed changes that directly relate to wages, hours, or working conditions will be furnished to the union at the national level at least 60 days prior to issuance. At the request of the union, the parties shall meet concerning such changes. If the union, after the meeting, believes that the proposed changes violate the national agreement, including this article, it may then submit the issue to arbitration in accordance with the arbitration procedure within 60 days after receipt of the notice of proposed change. Copies of those parts of all new handbooks, manuals, and regulations that directly relate to wages, hours, or working conditions as they apply to employees covered by this agreement, shall be furnished the union upon issuance. Article 19 shall apply in that those parts of all handbooks, manuals, and published regulations of the Postal Service, which directly relate to hours, wages, or working conditions, shall apply to CCA employees only to the extent consistent with other rights and characteristics of CCA employees provided for in this agreement, and otherwise as they apply to the supplemental workforce. The employer shall have the right to make changes to the handbooks, manuals, and published regulations as they relate to CCA employees pursuant to the same standards and procedures found in Article 19 of the National Agreement, see memo, page 214.
Handbooks and Manuals Article 19 provides that those postal handbooks and manual provisions directly relating to wages, hours, or working conditions are enforceable as though they were part of the national agreement. Changes to handbook and manual provisions directly relating to wages, hours, or working conditions may be made by management at the national level and may not be inconsistent with the national agreement. A challenge that such changes are inconsistent with the national agreement or are not fair, reasonable, or equitable may be made only by the NALC at the national level. A memorandum included in the 2019 National Agreement establishes a process for the parties to communicate with each other at the national level regarding changes to handbooks, manuals, and published regulations that directly relate to wages, hours, or working conditions. The purpose of the memorandum is to provide the national parties with a better understanding of their respective positions in an effort to eliminate unnecessary appeals to arbitration and clearly identify the narrow issues and cases that are appealed to arbitration under under Article 19. Local Policies Locally developed policies may not vary from nationally established handbook and manual provisions. And here's a citation. Additionally, locally developed forms must be approved consistent with the Administrative Support Manual and may not conflict with nationally developed forms found in handbooks and manuals. National Arbitrator Garrett held in blah 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 that, quote, the development of a new form locally to deal with stewards' absences from assigned duties on union business as a substitute for a national form embodied in an existing manual and thus in conflict with that manual, thus falls within the second paragraph of Article 19. Since the procedure there set forth has not been invoked by the Postal Service, it would follow that the form must be withdrawn. End quote. And here's a memo between the USPS and the NALC regarding Article 19. When the Postal Service provides the Union with proposed changes in handbooks, manuals, or published regulations pursuant to Article 19 of the National Agreement, the Postal Service will furnish a final draft copy of the revisions and a document that identifies the changes being made from the existing handbook, manual, or published regulation. When the handbook, manual, or published regulation is available in electronic form, the Postal Service will provide, in addition to a hard copy, an electronic version of the final draft copy clearly indicating the changes and other unmarked final draft copy of the change provisions with the changes incorporated. I don't know if I said that was number one, but it is. Number two in this memo The document that identifies the changes will indicate language that has been added, deleted, or moved, and the new location of language moved. Normally, the changes will be identified by striking through deleted language, underlining new language, and placing brackets around language that is moved with the new location indicated. If another method of identifying the changes is used, the method will be clearly explained and must include a means to identify which language is added, deleted, and moved, as well as the new location of any language moved. 3. When notified of a change to handbooks, manuals, and published regulations pursuant to Article 19 of the National Agreement, the Union will be notified of the purpose and anticipated impact of the change on City Letter Carrier Bargaining Unit employees. 4. At the request of the Union, the parties will meet to discuss the changes. If the union requests a meeting on the changes, the union will provide the Postal Service with notice identifying the specific changes the union wants to discuss. 5. 
Within 60 days of the union's receipt of the notice of proposed change, the union will notify the Postal Service in writing of any changes it believes directly it believes is directly related to wages, hours, or working conditions and not fair, reasonable, or equitable, or and or in conflict with the national agreement. The union may request a meeting on the changes at issue. 6. The Postal Service will provide the union with a written response addressing each issue raised by the union pursuant to paragraph 5 within 30 days of receipt provided the union identifies the issue within 60 days of the union's receipt of the notice of proposed changes. 7. If the union, after receipt of the Postal Service's written response, believes the proposed changes violate the national agreement, it may submit the issue to arbitration within 60 days of receipt of the notice of proposed change or 30 days after the union receives the Postal Service's written response, whichever is later. If the Postal Service fails to provide a response to the union pursuant to paragraph 6, the union may submit the issue to arbitration provided it does so within 30 days after the Postal Service's response was due. The union's appeal shall specify the change it believes is not fair, reasonable, or equitable, and or in conflict with the national agreement, and shall state the basis for the appeal. 8. If modifications are made to the final draft copy as a result of meetings with employee organizations, the Postal Service will provide NALC with a revised final draft copy, clearly indicating only the change which is different from the final draft copy. 9. When the changes discussed in paragraph 8 are incorporated into the final version of a handbook, manual, publication, or published regulation, and there is not an additional change which would require notice under Article 19, the union will be provided a courtesy copy. In such case, a new Article 19 notice period is not necessary. 10. Lastly, In any case in which the Postal Service has affirmatively represented that there is no change that directly relates to wages, hours, or working conditions pursuant to Article 19 of the National Agreement, time limits for an Article 19 appeal will not be used by the Postal Service as a procedural argument if the union determines afterward that there has been a change to wages, hours, or working conditions. Nothing contained in this memorandum modifies the Postal Service's right to publish a change in a handbook, manual, or published regulation 60 days after notification of the union. Date, January 10th, 2013. And that is the end of Article 19, and we'll move on to Article 20, and that's going to wrap us up. Article 20 covers parking. 20.1, Section 1, National Study Committee. The existing parking program will remain in effect. A National Study Committee on Parking will be established in order to improve the parking program at existing facilities and to recommend such programs for new facilities. Section 2. Security. Recognizing the need for adequate security for employees in parking areas and while en route to and from parking areas, the employer will take reasonable steps based on the specific needs of the individual location to safeguard employee security including, but not limited to, establishing liaison with local police authorities, requesting the assignment of additional uniform police in the area, improving lighting and fencing, and, where available, utilizing mobile security force patrols. Section 3. Labor Management Committee. Parking is a proper subject for discussion at local labor management committee meetings. The location of new, additional, or improved parking facilities the number of parking spaces, security, 
and lighting in the parking areas as well as similar subjects are proper agenda items for such meetings. The local labor management committee may make recommendations to the installation head concerning such subjects. The preceding article, Article 20, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Employee parking. Article 20 requires the Postal Service to continue the existing parking program, discuss improvements in a national study committee, and take reasonable steps to safeguard employee security in parking areas. Furthermore, parking is a proper subject for discussion in local labor management committee meetings. Article 30, Local Implementation. Article 30.B lists, quote, the assignment of employee parking spaces, end quote, as item 19 of the 22 subjects for local implementation. The intent of Article 30.B.19 is to establish or is to enable the parties to negotiate over the number of existing parking spaces which be allocated to letter carriers, rather than over the construction of new spaces. Local memorandum provisions may, for instance, determine the number of spaces allocated to letter carriers, may assign ba- spaces based on seniority or first-come, first-served, or any other method, and may provide for carrier parking in other available parking spaces. Negotiation between NALC branches and Postal Service installation heads over a local memorandum of understanding takes place during the local implementation period following the execution of each successive national agreement, Article 30. And that is the end of Article 20, and that is the end of today's podcast. When we come back, I'll probably do Article 21 as a standalone, and then uh, there's a few short ones after that, uh, so we'll see. That's all tomorrow's problem for today. That's it. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.